Hey everyone, Simba Kadir of the MLOps Weekly Podcast, and today I'm speaking with Piero Molino. Piero is the CEO and co-founder of Predibase, a company that's redefining machine learning tooling with a declarative approach. He previously worked as a research scientist exploring ML and NLP at Yahoo, IBM Watson, Geometric Intelligence, Uber, where he was actually a founding member of the Uber AI organization, and Stanford. He's the author of Ludwig, a Linux Foundation-backed open-source declarative deep learning framework with more than 8,500 stars. Gero, great to have you here today. Thank you very much for having me, Simba. You know, I really appreciate the time and the opportunity. Yeah, I'd love to just jump in. I gave a quick intro on you, but I'd love to hear in your own words. Tell me a bit about your journey to get to Predibase and building Ludwig. Yeah, so I will try to keep it short because it's actually pretty long, but I don't want to bore people with my own story. But I started by working on open domain question answering. That was my research when I was doing a PhD. Then I worked at a bunch of companies, large ones like Yahoo and IBM Watson, where I was actually doing you know, exactly what I was doing my research on was also the same thing that I was doing at IBM Watson. But then I felt the urge to work at a smaller company and to work shoulder to shoulder with people where my you know, decisions were really impactful for the company, right? So I joined a startup that was called Geometric Intelligence, founded by a bunch of really, really nice people like Gary Marcus, Zubin Garamani, Ken Stanley, Jeff Kloon, and Noah Goodman. And because they're really well known in the machine learning space and they have a lot of experience, I wanted to work with them to learn a lot. That was my main intent when I started working at the company. The company was acquired by Uber, and so that's where I actually started working on Ludwig, which is the open source foundation behind Pridebase. The reason why I was working on that is that when I was at Uber, I was doing both research and applications, so many different domains and many different actual you know, uh, machine learning tasks and products that Uber was adding machine learning capabilities to. One of it was, you know, dialogue system for Uber drivers. Another one was a customer support model called Kota. Another one was the recommender system of Uber Eats, where I added a few additional capabilities. Another one was a fraud prediction model. And so by working on all these different projects, I saw that there were a lot of things in common among these projects. And so I could build something like a tool for myself for making it much easier to work on the next project without reinventing the wheel from scratch. And that was the motivation for building Ludwig, which basically is a tool that creates an abstraction over the building, actually, of the machine learning pipeline by just requiring configuration file from the user, similar to what Terraform does for infrastructure. So it's like a declarative configuration where you can say, these are my inputs, these are my outputs, and these are the models that I want to use in the training parameters, for instance. And it builds the model for you. And so this abstraction is at the core of what I'm building now at Predibase because this declarative abstraction is what we use for making it possible to more users, actually, to build machine learning models. And we're building a bunch of capabilities around it, including capabilities of connecting with data, capabilities of managing the iteration over models, capabilities of deployment, and capabilities of running these things at a large scale without having to care about infrastructure to make this technology more accessible to organizations and more people within organizations, both engineers, data scientists. 
So I want to, um, I also, I love that you mentioned Terraform. Actually, our name feature form is, comes from Terraform. So it's a, right. <laughs> I definitely think that the declarative approach to MLOps is the right one. A lot of people, I imagine, associate Ludwig with AutoML, just because I think there was kind of maybe in a previous iteration, I think it had more to do with it. And it's obviously evolved and improved over time. I'd love to, if you could touch on that, like, is Ludwig an AutoML product? Is it not? When did that change happen? Did a change happen? I'd love to learn more. <laughs> yeah, so actually, it, it, it's very interesting that at the beginning, I was not the one who used the term AutoML to describe it. But actually, when people picked on it, there were like some videos on YouTube and some articles written by other people who defined it as an AutoML tool. But I, I was not the one starting it, I guess. <laughs> uh, the reason is that I think there's a substantial difference in the, uh, the very basic approach behind it, although we added AutoML capabilities to Ludwig. So the main difference is that Ludwig is, starts as a mechanism for defining a declarative configuration for describing your own models. At the very beginning, there was no automation of defining what the model is. You had to define it in a simpler way through the configuration, but it was still something that the user had to do. And the fact that there was, there are still a lot of defaults make it feel like it's an AutoML tool, but it, there was no intelligence in defining those defaults beyond like me picking values that I believe are, are working from papers, for instance. To give a concrete example of this, you know, if you specify that you have a um, you know, text classification task, right? And you specify one input is text and one output is category. That's all you need to specify in Ludwig to make it work. What happens is it chooses the default model, which is like a CNN for text, because it's a really lightweight one compared to RNNs or transformers. And you know, uses like default cross-entropy as a, the loss. And so in the end, it trains like a really competent model to begin with, but there's no anything smart about it, right? It's just, that's the default. And the user can go there and say, well, I want to use an, an RNN or a transformer instead of the CNN as the encoder for the text, right? The AnatomyL tool, what it actually does is it tries a bunch of different things for you, encoding some intelligence into this choice of what models to try, and then picks the best one, right? Later on in Ludwig, we added, so this was at the beginning of Ludwig, and later on we added additional capabilities, one around hyperparameter optimization. So you could say, for instance, I want to, still declaratively, which means you can say, I want to try a CNN, an LSTM, and a transformer for this task, and I want to try this learning rates within the range of 001 to 0001. And so the process looks like an AutoML process because you try a bunch of different things, and then they are stack ranked according to the performance. Uh, but still, the choice is the users when they're defining the ranges of parameters that they want to choose. And then finally, more recently, like not, I think was already a couple of years, like a year and a half ago, something around that, we added some AutoML capabilities where you can go in Ludwig and you have like an AutoML sub-package, sub-module really, and you can say, given this data set, suggest me a configuration. But these additional, uh, there is some smartness there because we tried many different configurations and we identified a bunch of configurations that work in many different scenarios for some specific tasks. And so now we also have these capabilities. But the core of it is that you have a configuration and you can change it and modify it the way you want. 
and you can iterate over it. While AutoML is still like a one-shot process where you have the dataset and you get the model out and you have no, no levers really, nothing that you can do in the process once you get the model out, right? So that's a fundamental difference in the spirit of it, really. So Lily does a lot. I mean, it sounds like it does, it's almost like in some ways uh, competitive to PyTorch or also being competitive to some of like the AutoML frameworks. What would you say, I guess, two questions. One is like, is your user typically any data scientist doing machine learning? Is there a specific subcategory of data scientists who use you more? And uh, I guess the follow-on would be, why do they use you? Why would they choose to use Ludwig over using PyTorch directly or just throwing it into DataRobot or HCO? Right, right. So I think there's two souls, if you want, of the tool that also reflected by their users, like the two kinds of main users, if you want. And I would say, by the way, Ludwig is built on top of PyTorch. So basically every single Ludwig model is a PyTorch model. And so it's not really a replacement for PyTorch. It's like a higher level abstraction that makes it easy to do PyTorch. And so if you want, on one hand, you have, again, the more, let me put it this way. On one hand, you have the more detailed tools, low-level tools that machine learning engineers use, like, again, PyTorch, TensorFlow, Scikit-Learn. And on the other hand, you have the AutoML tools, and we believe that the declarative abstraction and Ludwig as you know, an example of that declarative abstraction is a happy middle where you have the degree of control or close to degree of control of the low-level machine learning framework and the simplicity of use of an AutoML tool without sacrificing you know, the actionability, the fact that you can change any single parameter, right? As a consequence, users that you know, are using Ludwig right now and are like, targets for Ludwig really, are both more experienced users that could build these models themselves, but it will require them time. And so by using Ludwig, they're saving a lot of time. Or users that maybe are the first categories like data scientists and experienced machine learning engineers. And the second category is people that may not know how to build, for instance, deep learning model with PyTorch for a specific task, but the configuration system makes it very easy for them to get a competent model out of the box. And so those people are the people that would be more drawn to like an AutoML tool, but at the same time, don't adopt them because they, they create an artificial ceiling. They want to grow with the tool and want to have the possibility to change the parameters and basically iterate over the models and improve them. And so these people are more engineers that want to get something into their application, for instance, that they're building, and they want to add a machine learning capability. But at the same time, they don't want to be locked in into like an AutoML solution, or they don't want to just cross their fingers and say, well, if I'm going to get like a good model out of the box, great, otherwise I don't know what to do. They want to feel like they can influence the process of how they get to the model themselves, right? I like the, the kind of comparison to the happy middle. How would you define like the category? Like, is there a category that Ludwig fits in, or is it kind of its own thing? That's interesting. I mean, we are describing it as a declarative machine learning tool because mm-hmm. of the you know um, configuration-based approach. And I think it's, again, slightly different from both the low-level machine learning frameworks and the AutoML tools. But I think all of these things kind of live in the same space to a certain extent, which is like uh, machine learning tooling, really, machine learning platforms, machine learning tooling. Yeah. 
where do you think it fits into maybe the broader MLOps ecosystem when you think of things like weights and biases, Comet, on the, which I assume there's probably more tie-in all the way from like feature stores, observability platforms. Like, how does it all fit together in your head? Yeah. So this is maybe slightly different from Ludwig and Pridebase, if you want. So for Ludwig, for instance, we have plugins for Comet, with and Biases, MLflow for tracking experiments when users run them through Ludwig automatically. So you just add dash dash Comet, for instance, and you know the, the experiment that you're running and the training or the you know prediction that you're running is tracked on the specific tool that you specified, right? And with respect to object stores, there's nothing explicit in Ludwig, but I think there's a very, if you want, clean interface between object store and Ludwig, meaning that literally the output of the object store can be the input to the training of Ludwig. And then, you know, the output of Ludwig can be written back into like a data source that then the object store can read from, right? I would say the only caveat there is that Ludwig also does some data pre-processing. The way we define it really is anything that is common among multiple machine learning tasks that is specific to like a data type, we try to incorporate it. Like for instance, for text, tokenization, um, shortening of the text up to a certain specific length, cleaning of text by, for instance, lower casing or not. These kind of capabilities are there in Ludwig. And the same is true for images and other data types, like normalization for numerical values and things like that. What is not there in Ludwig is something that is bespoke for the data set, which could be, for instance, having a notion of rolling up a table for deriving features or for aggregating them or things like that. That is not in the domain of Ludwig. And, you know, feature stores are the best solution that we know right now for doing those kind of things, right? And so they can, uh, Ludwig can take the output of that and, and train them also. For Predibase, I would say we are trying to make the experience of the users really cohesive, if you want. We still don't focus on the feature store part, but all the other aspects of model management, model deployment, and infrastructure, we take care of all of them. And the reason is that we believe that through that kind of integration, we can provide a much better experience. Many organizations, what they do, they take different tools, maybe best-in-class tools for all of these things, and they put them together in a way that maybe, if you want... So each of these tools, let me rephrase this thing. I would say many organizations pick best-in-class tools and tries to put them together into a way that is cohesive, and there's merit to this kind of approach. But what we're trying to do is we're trying to make it so that they don't even have to think about putting these tools together. Right. It's a higher level of abstraction that we are trying to provide to users. And the reason is, if you have a system that knows exactly, um, like a deployment system that knows exactly what is the specific kind of models that are going to be deployed, it can be much simpler than you know, a tool that needs to support every single model format. Right. Same is true for uh, experiment tracking. If you know exactly what is the format of the output of the training process, you don't need to support TensorFlow, PyTorch, or any other you know, mechanism for training models that can write metrics in a super generic way that is maybe not supported already, right? So because of that, we can make decisions that make each single component that we are building substantially simpler than what 
best-in-class solution that supports everything is, but at the same time delivers the same amount of value for the customers that are adopting the platform. Got it. So today, it seems like there is simultaneously a lot of kind of, let's call it like MLS platforms. Predibase, I think, mm-hmm. kind of is in yep. that realm where it's kind of going across a few of the maybe like proto categories of MLOps. And then there's obviously kind of the, let's call them category players, like observability companies, there's serving companies, et cetera. What do you think the future is there? Do you think it mostly will continue to like split up and be kind of like many different categories that people knit together? Do you think it will mostly be platforms? I assume it'll likely be a mix, but I'm wondering like, do you think it's going to lean heavily towards platform base or heavily towards kind of stitch together? best-in-class vendor base. Yeah, yeah. Honestly, I think that machine learning, I mean, we're already seeing it, honestly, is growing so much as a field and so much as a, you know, industry category, if you want, that I believe there will be like space for all of these solutions and there will be, because they target a different kind of customers, really, and what they are capable of building in-house, what they're capable of, buying out and what they find the highest value building, assembling, or using, right? And I imagine a world where customers that are not tech companies may not want to build anything in-house and not even stitching things in-house. Customers that are tech companies that need to have a deeper degree of customization and control over what they're building they may be building something in-house and stitching something together. And, you know, as a scalers, we'll be building everything in-house because even like a 0.001% improvement in efficiency, either accuracy or speed or performance or anything, means millions and millions of dollars for them. So they have a reason for doing that. So I think we're going to see this full spectrum. And I think we're going to see different classes of companies adopting different solutions. I'm not sure which I don't, I don't think that it will be one that will be like over, overcome all the others. That's, that's the way I feel about it. So obviously one of the hot topics today is, let's call it LMs and, and foundational models. Right. Where do you think the world's going? Are we, uh, is traditional ML dead? Is it over? Is everything going to be a foundation? Like, have we figured it out? It's all foundational models. Is it going to be a mix? Like, what's your sense of how, and also another, I guess, another part I would love to have you expand on is, are these two separate paradigms? There will be traditional ML workflows and there will be kind of, let's call it, foundational ML workflows, or do you think there's going to be some mixing? That's a very interesting question, in particular, the second one. Let me start from that one, I would say, and then try to go back to the first one. So on the second one, I think that there is mixing. The way, also, we are thinking about it at Predibase and, you know, we're trying, we're starting to put out some material about it, some webinars and some you know, um, documentation about the way we're thinking about it, is that, let's say, now we have function that in many cases is capable of producing the outputs that a machine learning model was required to produce up until recently, right? And that is great because it means that the barrier of entry is substantially lower. At the same time, that function may not be the best one from many different perspectives for solving the task, right? It's a function that can do many different things. Maybe that specific thing that you want it to do may not be the best one at doing that specific thing. 
may not be the fastest one at doing that specific thing, may not be the most cost-efficient one at doing that specific thing. And so in my mind, there will be like a coexistence of large language models, foundation models in general, and more, if you want, traditional machine learning models because of the fact that I can imagine that users will approach solving their problems using an LLM, see that it can it is feasible and there's value in doing it, and then finding ways to make it cheaper, faster, and cost-effective, really. And that will be probably building a bespoke model for the specific tasks that they, they care about. And in that same light, like is the same thing true of AutoML? Like you would maybe use an LLM as a generic, almost like perfect AutoML type thing, but then you might use an AutoML solution or tool to try to kind of achieve similar performance characteristics for a much lower price, maybe faster. Is that the right way to think about it? Yeah, I think I think that makes sense. And it's like a matter of what is, from a performance perspective, good enough and what is good enough from, like um, again, all the other considerations, again, cost, speed, and, and all of that, right? For there, there will be some cases where, you know, the LLM may be good enough from all these points of view, right? And there will be cases when it will, it will be not. And from the, you know, AutoML kind of has the same promise, if you want, right? That I, I give you some data and there's a model coming back from it and that the, the model that is good enough for your task, right? The problem is when you get out of the happy path, when it is not good enough. And the same thing is true for the LLM in my mind. When it is not good enough, what are you going to do, right? Then all the other things that we've been working on for a while will keep on being relevant in all these cases, right? I'm curious, just because I know you have some research background in question answering and kind of other stuff in that realm, you're probably very, very familiar with transformers, embeddings, kind of that space in that problem space. We used to, in my last company, we did recommender systems, we used to kind of, we'd have lots of multimodal stuff. We'd create embeddings on images, on users, on pretty much anything. We'd feed them into fervor models to, that had very specific tasks, whether it be ranking, um, whether it be, it's a lot of it, predicting something to subscribe, etc. It's interesting to see vector databases finding kind of this new home and this new LLM landscape because it's almost like they're treating LLMs as this kind of super transformer. I guess that makes me wonder if we're going to start using LLMs as the same way we've used transformers historically, where it's like, hey, we're not using BERT, we're using GP27 now because it's, you know, 100 times better. Do you think that makes sense? Is there any sort of, do you feel like the world's moving that direction? Or do you think that's not what the future looks like? Yeah, so I think in particular from a question answering perspective, and again, recommender systems in this sense are relatively similar to that in my mind. You can use an LLM for embedding stuff, right? I think the value in it is slightly different than what it was before, right? Because before you would embed something and then retrieve it, and the retrieval was the task in on itself, right? I think now you can do more interesting things than that. An example is, you know, you can index something in a vector store, and then when you retrieve, what you retrieve is not the output. What you retrieve is what goes into an input to like a summary, like a further, you know, a step 
in the processing of that information through the LLM. Like you may want to summarize it, you may want to add references, you may want to use the supporting evidence for the answers that you are giving. You may use it as samples for doing few shot learning, really. And then, you know, actually, it's just examples for a different task. So there's, there's much more that you can do in the paradigm of I'm using LLM for being the controller of the process that I'm doing. And there are some examples like that. You know, the things that people are building with Langchain are super cool. There's this startup called Fixie that is like, you know, using LLMs as like a, a dispatcher really towards other functions, which could be LLMs themselves, could be something else, and integrate the capabilities of those other models into the interaction with the user. So it opens up more possibilities than there were before. Right? Totally. Yeah, it makes sense. Uh, Fixie is actually, we share a, a lead investor of them inside that. So oh, nice. it's been cool to see them be so successful. I think you're totally right. I think embeddings, we've already been seeing them being used essentially as features. It's almost like an interesting point because it's like what I would call maybe a traditional feature would be let's Z score this or let's, you know, just like do this aggregation or, you know, very like it, it's a SQL query, essentially what it's what it looks like. But nowadays, those let's call them transformation steps are actually transformers or even like LMs. And those generate outputs, and those outputs are features, and in this case, the features happens to be a vector. And I think that that's kind of going to become a really interesting, and I think it's a bit untapped still, because I think it's what goes from taking, I guess what people call like a fat client, where it's like, I think over a lot of the LLM or like companies I seeing in the application space there, it's like lots of them look very similar to me. And it makes sense because they're all using the same API, and the API is text or prompts, I guess. And the problem with prompts is, the great thing about prompts is like my grandma can use them. The hard thing about prompts is that like, that's about as far as you can get, right? You just have to start like trying to come up with crazy hacks to try to make these things work better. Uh, I, anyway, I think that's where things get kind of interesting to me is uh, seeing embeddings and these kind of intermediaries and starting to build logic on top of those to build more interesting applications. Yeah, and again, I agree with that. And also there is this interesting take that I've seen some people agreeing with regarding the fact that it is true, anybody can now, you know, use these interfaces because, you know, prompting is something that can be, looks like language and can be natural for people to do that. But at the same time, if you look at it from the point of view of a, a developer, it's a little bit like waving a magic wand in the air and hoping that something comes out, right? We have some affordances through language, but we don't really know the space of what is possible. And we don't really know why and if some of the changes that we make to a prompt should or should not work. We may have some intuition, some human language intuition, but they may not be actually true. Maybe like a, a prompt that is slightly less grammatical, maybe a better prompt for achieving a specific goal, right? And we actually, you know, we don't know that. It's trial and error. It's really a little bit of a black art, right? And so if you think from the perspective of someone who has been developing machine learning systems through programming languages, where you, you know, have a mental model of what the compiler or the interpreter will do, and you know exactly what you need to change to make that happen, it's a little bit disconcerting for people who have been building things that way, right? So It reminds me, there's uh, this fact I learned, which is, Crabs, like the animal, 
have been like evolutionarily created like many different times from many different places. So there's the joke of like, it's, it's the most effective or efficient. It's like the perfect, you know, evolution has decided that this thing is like a global minima. Like we keep ending up here. Right. And so I have the same joke about SQL where it's like we keep moving away from it and in the end we always seem to come back to SQL. Right. right. So I, I, I joke about like maybe one day we'll be prompting our LLMs in SQL again. Like we'll have like a SQL dialect for LLMs. There's already one. It's called like we are doing something like that ourselves because we have this SQL programming language, uh, predictive language in Base, and there's this, oh, I'm trying to, uh, let me search it up because I want to give you a good answer about it. I think it's called, it's called LLMQL, if I remember correctly, or LMQL. I want to be precise about it. Yeah, so LMQL. And there is this other research team, actually, that is building this thing called LMQL, and there's a paper about it. So, you know, we, we, we are rediscovering SQL yet once more for querying large language models, right? So it's interesting. And I also strongly believe that SQL declarative interfaces like that are a global minimum, uh, at the very least a local one that we end up there more and more time. I remember when I was uh, when I was at Yahoo, for instance, it's like a little bit of a side, but uh, Yahoo was the company open sourcing Hadoop at the beginning. And so it had a lot of legacy. And uh, when I interned there, I was writing Java code for running Hadoop um, jobs on Hadoop 0 dot something when the whole industry was at Hadoop choose dot something just because Yahoo had a lot of legacy Hadoop stuff. And, you know, I was writing basically select and uh, where clauses, but with in a very verbose way, like really hard to debug and all of that. And then there were like added SQL parsers into like uh, MapReduce jobs that made it substantially easier. So, you know, we really discover the, the basic things sometimes over and over again. I agree with you. Exactly. Yeah. And then like Hive comes out and it's kind of like, yeah, it, maybe one day after the AI apocalypse, there will be just crabs and SQL. <laughs> There'll be nothing else. <laughs> That's it. That's the best we could come up with. Hero, it's been great to have you on. I really appreciate your time and your takes and your insights. And uh, yeah, I hope to maybe have you on again. Yeah. You know, looking forward to it. I'm, you know, had a good time. It was fun chatting. And you know, thank you for spending time with me.